The tour content from now through Lagwa Omer has been generously sponsored by Malki M. Thank you, Malki. June is less than a month away, which means that I'll soon be transitioning into summer writing mode with more Substack articles and fewer recorded shiurim. The bulk of these articles will remain free. However, if you would like to support my Torah and gain access to additional spicy written content, consider becoming a paid subscriber by going to rabbishneweis.substack.com and signing up today. Hello, I'm Rabbi Matt Schneeweiss, and this is the Stoic Jew Podcast, where we explore the relationship between Judaism and Stoicism. Today's reading is from Marcus Aurelius' Book 4, Chapter 40. Think always of the universe as one living creature, comprising one substance and one soul. How all is absorbed into this one consciousness. How a single purpose governs all its actions. How all things work together to cause all that comes to pass. The very web and mesh of it all. Okay, now there are two approaches we can take to this chapter. The first approach is the approach that we are not going to take, but I'd like to articulate it so that I can dismiss it. <laughs> and that approach is treating this as a statement about physics or metaphysics, probably physics, I guess, right? Um, so, for example, um, Farco Harson, who is the translator and commentator on one of the editions I use of uh, Marcus releases meditations. He writes in his notes here that this chapter is a quote summary statement of the view of the universe which the Stoics adopted. The whole W H O L E is one substance with one informing logos or reason, metaphorically called soul or principle of life. The Stoics use the term unification, henosis, to express this. All the parts of this unity are connected by a kind of fellow feeling or sympathy, as all the constituent members of a living organism appear to be. Marcus nowhere gives the arguments for this hypothesis, but he illustrates it from the interrelation of the elements of physical bodies, the social instincts of animals, the connection of the sun, the planets, and the stars. This term sympathy was originally a term of magic, but is characteristically adopted by the school in a professedly scientific sense. It was used in a different sense by the Neoplatonists. The argument from the coincidence between changes of the astronomical bodies and mundane phenomena, for instance, the relation between the moon's phases and the tides was a favorite one for exhibiting this presumed sympathy, end quote. So that's the type of analysis I do not want to do. I've said many times in the podcast, I'm not really interested in stoic um, metaphysics or physics. I'm only interested in their ethics. And if you want to take this as Marcus really is telling us what he thinks the universe uh, really is by its nature, then great. Then, you know, you, you can learn about Roman uh, Roman science. The, the approach I do want to take, though, has to do with uh, viewing this as relevant to ethics, as to how to live. And what I want to do is I want to illustrate this from a comparison to Torah and to the way that I used to teach the first chapter of Breshis when I taught 12th grade Chumash. Uh, now, I wrote an article on this, and I'm not going to, because I wrote an article, I'm not going to go into it on the podcast, but uh, I'll, I'll link it in the show notes. Basically, I got this approach from a, a book called The Beginning of Wisdom. Uh, wait, what's the full title of the book? Hold on just one second here. It is called, it's by Leon Cass, who is a very interesting guy. Um, not a religious, uh, I, I don't think he's religious. He is Jewish. Uh, he wrote a wisdom-seeking commentary on 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 Brachis, on Genesis, where he basically says we are going to treat this as a book of wisdom and see what wisdom we can get out of it which is a great way to approach anything um so the book is called hold on where is the title of the book oh the beginning of wisdom reading genesis okay 2003 so i got this approach from him um and his theory basically is that if you look at other creation accounts and you compare them with torah then you see that the Torah is engaging in a sort of polemic against these competing narratives. 
Um, and and for for example, um, you know, the Torah's creation account is filled only with real world objects and phenomena that we see. There are no mythical, magical elements whatsoever. No, no magical, you know, um, no angels, no, uh, no monsters, no magic itself. Uh, it's all just, you know, the sky and the waters and the land and the animals, etc. You know, uh, another example is obviously, uh, you know, uh, a creation account that involves many highly anthropomorphic deities uh, that usually are engaging in some sort of conflict and creating the world to satisfy some sort of petty uh, human motive. Uh, and here in the Torah, you have a completely non-physical creator, not described in any way, that is creating the world with design, but not for any sort of human purpose. Uh, and so... The basic idea that I write about in this post and the, the the point I wanted to convey in teaching this to my 12th graders is that the way that the Torah presents creation uh, is it is intended to be a philosophical primer or primer is how you say it. I don't know for healthy development as a truth seeking intellect. OK, and it's basically setting you up to look at the universe in a way that will will promote truth seeking. And one of the hallmarks of this is how does the Torah depict the universe? So the Torah, unlike Marcus Aurelius, does not treat the universe as an organism, but rather it treats the universe as malacha, as craft. Okay, and what is craft? It is craft is basically matter organized by design, organized with intelligent design or lawfulness. And if you view, let's let's forget Stoicism one second. If you compare, let's say, you know, a, a myth that has the universe emerging as an accident, okay, or the universe emerging as the outcome of, of you know, some sort of sexual intercourse between a male and female god, or the universe as a, as a product of magic. So if that's the way that you are brought up looking at the universe from an early age, and that's the way your whole culture looks at the universe, you're not going to seek knowledge in the universe. You're not going to seek lawfulness. You're not going to seek consistency. Whereas we who view the universe as being created by one intelligent being who, who, who designed the universe, we will be looking for unified lawful design in the world around us. And so that's what I mean when I say that, that the Torah is basically setting us up to approach the universe as a truth-seeking intellect. If you're interested in more on that, then you can check out the, uh, the article that I've linked in the show notes. So what I want to do is apply that approach to Marcus Aurelius here, not saying that he's suggesting to view the universe as an organism because he thinks that that's actually how it works, but rather that this has ethical ramifications. So the question is, what? how are you going to relate to yourself or to the universe or to your fellow man in uh, if you look at the universe as an organism? So the overarching thing here, I think, is that what he says at the end, which is, how all things work together to cause all that come to pass, the very web and mesh of it all. So I think the idea is that you know you look at a um, you look at a living organism, and I mean we know this much more than Marcus Aurelius did back then, but we see how every single thing in the living organism is uh, is interconnected, and if one thing is affected, then it affects the entire system. I saw a quote attributed to Marcus Aurelius that says what's what's 
bad for the bee is bad for the beehive and what's bad for the beehive is bad for the bee. I don't know if that's an actual quotation or just an internet quote or attribution. Uh, but that's the idea is that, that when you, when you're, when you're talking about living organisms, then what happens to one element of the organism affects the entire organism or, or what happens to, you know, uh, in a, in a colony or something like that to one organism will affect all the members in, in, in a way, or at least potentially can. So I think that's the idea that you get from this. And he referenced this first in book two, uh, at the end of chapter one, where he says, we was talking about how he can't be any, he can't be angry at any of his kinsmen. He says, nor can I be angry with my kinsmen, nor hate him for we have come into the world to work together like feet, like hands, like eyelids, like the rows of the upper and lower teeth. So again, that's depicting himself and his fellow man as part of one organism. He says to act against one another then is contrary to nature and it is acting against one another to be vexed and to turn away. So that I think is the strength of of his way of looking at things. Again, I'm, I'm obviously Hashem decided to first present the universe as Malacha. Um, but that does not mean that there are, that doesn't rule out the possibility of there being other useful ways to look at the universe. And I think this is a useful way that, uh, that unlike the, the metaphor of Malacha, which is static, the idea of we are all part of this living entity and that what happens to, part of the organism will affect the other. I, I, I think there, it, it just emphasizes the, um, where, let's put it this way, whereas the Torah's mashal of Malacha emphasizes the design and the chachma, you know, the wisdom behind things, the lawfulness of the universe, this really emphasizes the social responsibility and the, the, the tzedek, the righteousness, the, the interconnectedness of all, of all people in the system. Uh, and, and that's what makes this, uh, this valuable. And, and again, I, I, uh, I, I know I've quoted this in the past, but that quote from Einstein, I think is relevant here. So he says, a human being is part of a whole called by us, the universe, a part limited in time and space. He experiences himself, his thoughts and feelings as something separated from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of his consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circles of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. Um, so um, that idea also, I think, is promoted very well by... Marcus Aurelius's conception of the universe that that we naturally tend to view ourselves as separate from everything, and when he's saying that you should view yourself as part of one organism, it it you know again it promotes this view of I am, you know I and my fellow human being are are two parts of one whole, and uh, and it you know it, it it breaks down that optical delusion of consciousness. So that's what I got out of this. I guess the remaining question is. You know, what do we gain from the metaphor? Like, for example, in Mishlei, then, you know, Mishlei also promotes systems thinking, you know, because one of the main characters of Mishlei is the Tzadi, because the man or the person of, you know, who is defined by uh, helping bring people in line with the, with the system and doing what's best for the system. So Mishlei promotes that, but not through, the, not through this metaphor, you know? So I kind of feel like, why do we need this metaphor you know, wh wh why can't we just think of things in terms of a system? There must be some emotional gain from thinking about this, uh, you know, in this metaphor. And uh, uh, that's something I still want to think about. But I think I will end the episode for today. That is it for today's episode. If you've gained from what you've learned here, please consider contributing to my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash rabbishnaywise. Alternatively, if you would like to make a direct contribution to the Rabbi Schneewise Torah content fund, my Venmo is at matt-schneewise, and my Zelle and PayPal are mattschneewise at gmail.com. 
Even a small contribution goes a long way to covering the cost of my podcast and will provide me with the financial freedom to produce even more Torah content for you. If you would like to sponsor a day's or a week's worth of content, or if you are interested in enlisting my services as a teacher or tutor, you can reach me at rabbishnewise at gmail.com. Thank you for my, yeah, blah, blah. Thank you to my listeners for listening. Thank you to my readers for reading. And thank you to my supporters for supporting my efforts to make Torah ideas available and accessible to everyone.